Hello and welcome back to the first episode of Under the Lights for 2021. We're going to start off with a bang. Saints are brilliant on the pitch. I'm joined by Dan Sheldon from The Athletic. Without further ado, my name is Tom Murray. My name's Callum Wilson. This is Under the Lights and we're off again to Kingsland Corner. So yeah. 2021, a new year, back in lockdown, no change there. Happy New Year, mate. Yeah, Happy New Year. I hope you, uh, hope you had a good New Year's and a good Christmas. It's same conversation with everyone, isn't it? Uh, how was your Christmas? Oh, it was good considering, you know, we did the best we could, but we still had a nice time. So, you know, hopefully everyone's dealing with it. You know, it is a mess at the moment, but what, what can you do about it? But make the most of everything. And whilst we've still got football, it's been a good start to 2021 for the Saints, isn't it, mate? Absolutely. I mean, going back to what you just said, it's sort of like a British thing of just saying, oh, well, you know, we made the boat. We made the best of it. It was all right. It was a bit quiet. But I tell you where it wasn't quiet. And that was on the pitch on the Saints' first game back. What a, what a brilliant way to start a new year. You can't really ask for much better than that. I know. And it came out of nowhere. I don't think there were too many Saints fans, I'll be fair to say, that expected that win, especially once we saw the team sheet. Uh, we saw that the bench was Shane Long and the academy. Uh, it was it was something that sort of struck a bit of fear, I think. It, it certainly did myself. I saw that and I thought, oh, God, here we go. Uh, we're going to get taken to the cleaners here um, by a strong Liverpool team, but much, much the other way. I think we we dominated in the first half and then we, we played a certain way that Saints fans probably don't like in the past because it often doesn't work. But the organisation and the effort and the determination that Ralph's got this team installed into this team is is reaping its rewards. And uh, and they managed to shut out Liverpool, who had one shot on target, which was a scuffed effort from Sadio Mane. So um, even even without McCarthy, uh, we uh, we still managed to uh, keep another clean sheet. But yeah, we'll talk more about that when we talk to talk to our guest later on. Plenty to talk about. We've got the January transfer window uh, opened up. And already some names flying around on uh, online for Saints. I expect it'll be a reasonably quiet window, but there might be a loan in there. And uh, we'll speak to Dan Sheldon, who uh, will have his ear to the ground at this time of the year, as always. Uh, we'll talk to him about that Liverpool game. The last few games since Christmas, we haven't brought an episode to you guys since before uh, the festivities. And we'll be talking about a number of things with, uh, with Dan. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about a bit of football mate because Saints are looking back up the table again 17 games in four points off the top it's pretty it's pretty special at the moment and to be within touching distance after not a disappointing festive period but certainly you know three games without a goal four games without a win and then suddenly we bounce back with in, in great style and yeah, we can now go, we've got this, this sort of sort of break now with the FA Cup, whether or not, whether or not the game is going ahead, we, we haven't had that confirmed just yet, but rumours are, and we'll ask Dan about that, whether, whether Saints will be facing Shrewsbury this weekend. But either way, um, it's two weeks, it, there would have been a bit of rotation anyway, so it's good two weeks for those injuries to heal, Saints batteries to be recharged, and then a tough but exciting load of fixtures in January, the likes of Leicester, Leeds as well. I think that's going to be a good game because you're guaranteed goals pretty much in any game facing Leeds. And I'm hoping 
that Vestergaard is actually back for that one. We'll discuss it more in a future podcast, but because they concede so many from free kicks, if we can get Vestergaard back for that one, then who knows, the big day may have a hat-trick, Callum. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're looking we're looking ahead there. Saints have got some tough games coming up. It'll be made even tougher with uh, an extra fixture potentially wedged in there with Shrewsbury. But then we don't know what's happening. You know, at the moment, there are so many players for teams at all levels, including the Premier League, that are going down with COVID, uh, is it a matter of time before the, the powers that be have no choice but to, to pause uh, briefly? We don't know what's going on at the moment. It's only It only seems to be getting worse currently, not just in football, but in this country. So you could have a pause for a couple of weeks, but you know, what good would that do? I don't know. So hopefully we get more football and hopefully we don't get to a point now. We're back where we were with lockdown back in March. Hopefully football doesn't go that way, what with the testing capabilities and, and everything that we have. And hopefully we don't have a, a long break without football where we're, uh, where we're celebrating uh, the return of the Bundesliga and, and, uh, and trying to... Do you remember, do you remember that? <laughs> I was thought oh. the other day. I was thinking, how long ago does that lockdown seem when you're stuck at home and TikTok became a thing and clapping for carers and, and there was no football and they got to a point where, you know, you were, you were fanboying over uh, SC Paderborn, how, how things have changed. But hopefully we don't get to that point and we can, we can look forward to the second half of what has already been a fantastic season for Saints so far. Let's welcome in our guest... We've got, uh, we haven't had a guest, we haven't had a, a podcast for, for a good couple of weeks, but we're happy to be able to get Dan Sheldon on, uh, just coinciding uh, with the opening of the January transfer window, and I'm sure he'll have plenty of thoughts about that. Yeah, so we're really delighted to have Dan Sheldon, who covers Southampton for The Athletic on the show. You can find him at Dan Sheldon Sport on Twitter. Dan, Happy New Year. Thank you for coming on. Evening, Tom. Thank you for having me, and Happy New Year to you both as well. Yeah, and what a start it was to the new year. That win against Liverpool still bringing, putting smiles on every Saints fan's faces. I mean, just how big of a result was that to start the year off with? It was massive. It, completely unexpected. I don't think many Southampton fans would have thought that they were going to escape with a 1-0 win at St Mary's, but they fully deserved the three points. I thought they played really well in the first half. Second half, they were, as expected, under a lot of pressure, but they, Liverpool just kept them doing the same thing over and over and over again. So Southampton's defence were able just to mop it up each time, each time, each time. The only concern is, and I'm sure many Southampton fans probably thought, oh, we're going to concede, we're going to concede. But in reality, Liverpool never really got that close. And I think what's significant about that result is not only is it the Premier League champions, but that was off the back of two arguably fairly disappointing performances. I thought Fulham especially was a big opportunity missed. West Ham, the Saints have a poor record against them. So you could, you could take a point, but I thought they looked leggy in those two games but against Liverpool they it was just an energetic performance I, I was surprised at how energetic they were I thought that that week's well, the extra week to prepare as opposed to not having a game midweek clearly really benefited them Stuart Armstrong was able to come in and what a difference it, he made after sitting on the bench in the last game so it was all these different things and it was a moment of brilliance from Danny Ings and you, you don't need me to point that out everyone has seen the goal it was fantastic it was just he wasn't even looking at the goal when he hit the ball it's just one of those moments only sort of Danny Ings can do in a Southampton shirt and that that goal alone deserved to win that match 
And it was really quite funny um, watching one of the replays of that goal with Jack Stevens at the far post. He was clearly calling for it and the sort of the look of dismay as Ings... I mean, I don't know why you'd expect Ings to pass it to you there in the box, but anyway, just watching his face fall and then as the ball drops into the back of the net, he's suddenly the first one uh, getting a piggyback off Danny Ings. So that was, that was really great to see. And I think certainly... Callum, you and I agree on this point that at the very start of the game when the lineups were announced and we saw that Shane Long was pretty much chaperoning the rest of the bench, uh, a lot of Saints fans may have thought, oh dear, this is, uh, this is not going to go well at all. And I would have been one of those. Uh, you saw that bench and it was impossible not to, to fear the worst. The starting 11 was fine. I thought Romeo was going to be a big miss. It turned out Diallo was absolutely superb. But when you looked at the bench and you thought, oh gosh, Liverpool, look at the players they can bring on. Okay, they weren't, you know, Liverpool weren't at full strength, full strength, but they still had some quality on the bench. And then you looked at Southampton's bench and it's got eight academy graduates on it. And you think, where are they going to get this experience from? And where, you know, they're winning 1-0. Who's going to come on and help close the game out? There's just no experience there. But to a man, Nathan Teller came on, thought he was brilliant. I thought Musa was playing really well up until that point, but Nathan Teller had a good chance to score. Valerie came on. I mean, does anyone even remember Jan Valery? He came on, did well, almost scored himself. And then Dan Anundalu came on and made the impact as well. And to, to finish that game with, I think it was five academy graduates on the pitch, to beat the Premier League champions, is, that is just massive. I think that says a lot about what Ralph thinks of the young players in the squad. Now, don't get me wrong. If Yannick Vestergaard was fit, if Shay Adams was available, if Nathan Redmond was fit, there would have been three fewer academy players on that bench perhaps but that was the situation that Ralph was in he turned to them and they they repaid the faith I was I was really impressed I was one of those as well as soon as I saw the lineup um I didn't even need to look at Liverpool so I saw our lineup and, and our bench especially and I braced myself for a for a bit of a um a smashing from Liverpool and two minutes in I thought oh brilliant well at least we've got something to to hold on to to put towards that uh, what a fantastic goal it's not very often I, I watch a, a goal and I think how has he done it like that is so difficult to execute to even have the the confidence to do it which I understand but when you watch the replay and the amount of distance he's covered and the ball's moved and not at any point does he look at the goal yet he finds the absolute top bracket is I, I watched that and I thought I don't think there are many people in the Premier League that could do what he did and I put a tweet out saying that, you know, I think Danny Ings is, is up there as definitely one of, if not the best finisher in the Premier League right now. Uh, it, it was an unbelievable finish. And with his weak foot as well, which, is, which just adds to it. You can sort of see by his celebration, he was sort of just almost laughing because everything he touches turns to gold at the moment. And I would have backed him to, to score that rather than um, Jack Stevens to put it away from two yards. And that's nothing against Jack Stevens, but... If Danny Ings wants to shoot in this team, then roll out the red carpet for him. But going back to, the, to that lineup, yeah, I, I was worried. And partly because we've seen it all before. We've seen when we, with this squad, it is quite small. Um, and if we have a few players missing, we do then have to rely on, on the bench. Um, and there were some players that a lot of us fans would never have heard of before sitting on the bench. And you, usually what has happened in the past, and I specifically think about the Man United game, but maybe some others as well, is is that um, we don't often use the bench and we become very leggy in the second half and then we tend to lose late on or lo lose a lead 
um, maybe because Ralph hasn't had that kind of confidence yet in, in the youth. But I was really impressed with the subs that he made, the times that he made them and the trust that he put in. And as you said, Dan, all three of them came on um, and did in their own way a, a fantastic job for the team, especially Nathan Teller, who came on after just sort of 30 minutes. It's a shame because I think I've been disappointed with Gineppo recently, but I thought he was having one of his better games. And you could see, you know, emotion was high because he has been really unfortunate since he joined the club with muscle injuries and he's he's got another one. So hopefully it's, he's not out for too long. But yeah, really impressed with the youth. And um, and I just thought quite, quite funny, um, only moments after uh, the new Burnley owner had, had talked about how the, uh, our owners had stunted the um, progression of our once brilliant academy and, and as you said they've come on and just helped us beat the Premier League champions so that was, that was quite ironic but yeah a, a great win and considering we were missing so many players I mean we were playing with a goalkeeper who hasn't played for three years for the club at St Mary's probably our best player so far this season at the back hasn't played and we've kept three clean sheets uh, with a with a with a centre-back pairing that last year, at times in the first half of the season, were, were really shoddy. And, and Romeo wasn't there either. So we were missing, a, you know, and then Adams up front, the spine of our team has kind of been ripped out. And the strength that we have in, in those bench players, the likes of Diallo, who I thought was really, really impressive. And then Nathan Teller coming on up front. I think, yeah, we, we, they've, they've done Hassan Huttel a real service there. And they've just shown... I think that's what I think that's part of the reason he was so emotional. Not only was it against Klopp, but I think it was just a culmination of everything that he's instilled into this team. That especially second half, that desire, determination to really hold on to that lead, fight for everyone. We might not have had our best eleven out there, but they put everything on the line, which is something that Liverpool didn't do, and that's why we beat them. I think the Ralph has re the the reaction from Ralph down at full time has received quite. A bit of a mixed reception. Certain people have sort of ripped into him for him crying at the full-time whistle. Others have commended him. Where do you stand on it? Because personally, my personal opinion is he has every right to after how where the club has been in his tenure. And obviously, we don't want to mention that particular result too often. But to consider that was what little more than a, a year ago, and now Saints are sitting halfway through the season, four points off the top of the Premier League. Where do you stand on his reaction at the end of the game? Claude Poe's too quiet, Ralph's too passionate. I mean, what, what do people want? It's, I'm all for it. it. This guy, this is a manager who lives and breathes Southampton Football Club. He is so hands-on, so intense. Every day of the week, it's 100% or nothing. He obviously has a long history with Jurgen Klopp. They both did their coaching badges together. That's well known. But he'd never beaten Jurgen Klopp. He, the closest he'd ever come to beating them was when Southampton lost 2-1 um, last year. Every other game they've had together, there's been a bigger margin than one goal. So that's as close as he got. And even that wasn't that close. So for, for Ralph to do that, with those players, you know, with, that, with those subs against the Premier League champions, against a manager he admires greatly, who many regard as the best manager in Europe, if not the world, alongside Pep Guardiola maybe, it meant everything. Of course it meant everything. Look back sort of eight, eight, eight days ago. He was facing a period of self-isolation at home. He thought his wife had coronavirus. That, of course, is going to be a, that's going to be a, a scary moment for anyone. Um, although she wasn't showing any symptoms, you never know. Like, some people develop symptoms later down the line. So to have that and then have those, the Premier League look at it, realise there was a big chance that it was a false positive, uh, retest them again, 
and then be cleared to go back to Staplewood, that undoubtedly is going to be a bit of a, an emotional roller coaster. To then have that training session before the game where seemingly every single player got injured is going to add to the problems. So you're going into that game on a Monday night in front of the cameras and everyone sees the team sheet and everyone thinks, uh-oh, here we go. Here comes an absolute pumping. And it wasn't. It just wasn't the case. You know, he, I honestly, I, I, I mean, I'm not a Southampton fan, but watching that game and watching Ralph afterwards, everyone supported Southampton that night, apart from Liverpool fans. It was just brilliant to see. And I'm not really too sure. Simon Jordan, I don't listen to talk sport, but you obviously see the clips that go viral. And a lot of the time he, he talks a lot of sense, but the Ralph thing, I didn't understand it. I thought it was a weird, weird point to make. It's, it was irrelevant. The guy loves football. The guy loves Southampton mm-hmm. Football Club. He's just beaten by greatly. It's no, for me, it was brilliant. I, I really like seeing it. I think the question is, you know, what, why shouldn't he? Uh, I think, I think, I haven't seen a single Saints fan who would argue with it, and or or said, oh, why is our manager crying? It's been players, or not players, sorry, but it's been fans or of other teams, or it's been pundits, and I don't think Ralph is going to really care what any of those have to say. Like you said, he, he lives, breathes Southampton and and everyone's behind him. You know, I, I haven't seen as much love for a Southampton manager in, in as long as I can remember. He's he's adored by the fans and then no one cares about what everyone else thinks. It's about what we're doing. And and you make a good point and it's one that I've I've considered as well and I'm not sure many others have is that he, you know, he was self-isolating for the last game, sitting on the toilet doing interviews with Sky Sports. So in his tracksuit, yeah, in his tracksuit, of course. So he's, you know, he, he wasn't there to, to kind of, and and he he is one of the, as you said, he's so hands-on, and he has created something. He's improved so many of those players that are on the pitch. He is moulded and he's improved, and everything that happens on the pitch, they're all, they're all so well drilled and organised. And what we saw was a complete performance from a Ralph Arsenal team missing loads and loads of players and so I think there's an emotion uh, attached to it of, of a lot of pride but also a lot of relief because he's beating Jurgen Klopp and also he was you know a week ago he wasn't able to be at St Mary's because as you said he thought he thought his wife had Covid so so many emotions not even just attached to football so much going on with him in his personal life for it all to culminate in in a really tense edge of your seat game, he said himself that he didn't think we'd won the game until about the 92nd minute. And Saints fans are probably with him on that. So all the way till the end, his emotions were probably running high. And as soon as the whistle went, he probably, all the weight off of his shoulders fell to the ground. And so what if he cried? Just because we don't see it all the time. I'm with you. I didn't really understand what Simon Jordan was talking about. I thought it was a bit of a moot point. It was just something, something to talk about, something to write about. Um, and you know, if 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 our manager cries because he's he's that obsessed with what we're doing, he's that devoted to to the team, and I think that's that can't be anything but a good thing. I think that as as you said, you made a point that in your time of supporting Saints, you don't think you've seen a, a manager <laughs> as passionate. For me, I'd put him level on my adoration for Adkins as well. Those two together, I, I feel like in terms of like just likability and what he's achieved so far Pochettino and Koeman brilliant managers achieved a lot but I think with Adkins and Ralph they're the sort of people who could walk around Southampton and get a handshake from pretty much every every fan and Dan we put a we oh, put more a, of a wave from two meters oh yeah yeah socially distance obviously <laughs> um but 
Uh, Dan, we put a poll out on our Twitter asking what was Ralph's best Premier League result so far in his tenure. And I think maybe due to how close it was to the result, Liverpool seemingly won hands down with about 60% of the votes. But we got quite a lot of responses saying that the win against Leicester after everything that happened was also maybe one of the large biggest. Where do you rank that Liverpool win as the best? Is that the best win of his tenure so far? Not for me, no. It's obviously a massive win. But then do you consider that a bigger win than beating Man City? That's another a top team. Of course, uh, Man City last year was sort of 20 odd points behind Liverpool in the title race. But they were at that time the reigning Premier League champions. The one for me was the one you just mentioned, uh, Leicester going to going to the King Power and winning there. I think that was really sort of symbolic. And if anyone was in doubt, which I don't think Southampton fans, maybe for a little bit they were sort of questioning whether this guy is the, the right person. That for me was justification for good old-fashioned coaching. These are the same players that he had when they lost to Leicester the first time around. So to go there and win, that, that for me was just... Because all the... That that result will live with Ralph for the rest of his career. It, it doesn't matter what he does; he'll always be known. You know that will always be there. The fact that they lost that game will always be there. So to go back, win there, and not only do that, and this is a point I think that often gets forgotten as well, is from that game they picked up more points than Leicester for the rest of the season. If there's a stat that sort of singles out Ralph as a coach, that is it. He is an absolutely fantastic coach. He didn't give up. He just went back with the same players who could easily have chucked, chucked the toys out the pram or whatever, given up for this guy is not for us. Let's get a new manager in. But they didn't just through his personality, his charisma, his dedication to improve every single day. They all bought in and look at the journey they're on at the moment. So for me, although Liverpool, I think is a, a consequence of the way that Ralph has the team playing, etc. But for me, the, the standout one, I think, was Leicester. I mean, then you could even look at going to Chelsea at Stamford Bridge and winning 2-0. That was a brilliant result that not many saw coming when he rested Danny Ings and played Shea Adams and Michael Obafemi, who at that time weren't playing very well. So there, there's a lot of standout results. I think the Liverpool one, while important and while obviously a, just a fantastic moment for the club, for the players and for the staff and supporters, for me, I still think the Leicester one the Leicester one tops that. Maybe had there been fans at St Mary's and it was sold out and then that could have maybe swayed me because of the atmosphere and everything like that. But no, Leicester for me still. And of course, Leicester is the next fixture for uh, Saints in the Premier League. Now, moving on, we've got a potential two-week break before that game, Dan, because no one really knows what exactly is happening with the FA Cup match, which would be a good opportunity either way to rest or rotate players. And I think with the injuries in the squad, disappointingly, obviously, um, the injury to Salisu as well, because I'm sure fans are looking forward to seeing him at some point. But what, as it's, we're, we're, we're speaking on Wednesday evening. What, what do you know about the game at the moment? Because there's been quite a few developments with that match so far. So at the moment at 20 past six on Wednesday night, the expectation from Southampton is that it will not be going ahead on Saturday. Obviously, Shrewsbury had several positive, well, coronavirus tests came back positive. I think the, the local reporter in Shrewsbury said as many as 10. So it, it depends how depleted their squad is uh, going into this weekend. And it's just, it doesn't look likely in any kind of way that this game will go ahead on Saturday. It then becomes a question of whether there's a buy or 
whether the game is postponed and rescheduled. And from conversations I've had throughout the afternoon, it all points towards uh, a reske- like the game being rescheduled. It then becomes a case of, well, when and where do we fit this game in? As Callum mentioned off-air, you've got, there is a, a chance to perhaps play it at midweek or possibly play it when the fourth round is taking place. But again, that really is something that Southampton, the FA and Shrewsbury all need to sort of come together and work out the best time forward. So that's where we're at at the moment. So that's all there is to really share on that for now. As fans, whilst we don't know, we don't have confirmation of what's going to happen with that game, all we can discuss from a fan's point of view, therefore, is in the two weeks now that Saints potentially will not have a game, players can come back from injury and fitness can be rebuilt and then maybe when against Leicester we'll see I think, I think the youth players have deserved their chance to be on the bench again and be part of that matchday squad. But obviously, we want to see maybe a bit, a bit more strength, the likes of Redmond coming back. Adams, you could expect to, I'd imagine you'd expect to come back. And then obviously, Vestergaard is maybe a bit of a, a longer term thing. But do you think that in the short term, two weeks of recuperation could maybe outweigh playing Shrewsbury in? A midweek game I know that fixtures are as cramped as they are but Saints surely would have rotated anyway so maybe having to squish them in further down the line for possibly getting two weeks of just training and recuperation might benefit the side 100% I don't think there's an argument to suggest it wouldn't it it would be brilliant for Southampton if they had two weeks without a game as you've said this season is just so intense so full-on they've just come up off the festive period um where they played obviously a handful of games, then straight into the Premier League champions. So to have two weeks off where there's going to be no winter break this year, it would just be huge. It, it, like you've said, it, it would give players who are injured the chance to recover. It would give players that are perhaps feeling it in their legs quite a lot, but are still playing on time to recover and get ready to go again. And I, I can't stress the importance of that. Imagine you know, how intense Southampton played on on Monday night, imagine them with a two-week break off the back of them going into games against Leicester. From memory, I'm going to try and remember them now. Leicester, then I think they've got Leeds. They're both going to be kind of full-on games. And then in any particular order, I'm not sure which it is, but you've got Man United, Aston Villa and Wolves. So they're not going to be, that's not an easy run of games by any stretch of imagination. So to have two weeks off going into them games where those other teams could potentially be playing or look like they're going to be playing, that would be massive for Southampton and for, for Ralph to, and even for Ralph to kind of probably get over the sort of emotion of Monday night and have time to settle back down, come off cloud nine and get his team refocused. So two weeks would be fantastic. I think this is a, a, another point in that regardless of when the game would have been played, it's likely that there would have been rotation and a lot of those young players that we've seen play a handful of minutes um, would have got a, a starting berth so for that to have taken place on Saturday would have been fine but at the same time for it to take place between two weekend games probably would also be okay because uh, because the young guys would have had it drilled into them and they would have um, potentially wouldn't have 11 changes I wouldn't think but there would have, there wouldn't be many players that are playing three games in a week and what you do get as you said from from this is a full two week break whereby we don't have to be on the training pitch with the young guys ahead of uh, an FA Cup tie. Um, and if the world was normal, we might well see that they'd be um, off doing some warm weather training or something like that, which is so so um, often done when teams are out of the Cup. So 
yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, we, we all trust that Ralph Arsenal was going to do the right thing. I think usually there'd be some rest and I think there will be because the way we play is, like you said, so intense. But I don't think there'll be too long a rest break because he'll be back on the training ground going through those automatisms and, and um, putting the guys through their paces because what you don't want them to do is, is, is lose that sharpness. But the main thing is it's an opportunity to get some of those players back ahead of the Leicester game. And the squad, once again, could look in a really good place after the academy boys and those that remain in did such a good job of, um, of holding the fort and, and beating the Premier League champions. It puts us up into the sort of top six, 17 games gone. So we're almost halfway through the season. It's strange to pinpoint it because we obviously started the season so late. January isn't really January. But we're, we're at the point now where we've just had a, a run of games in that busy festive period where maybe the squad struggled and we had too many games, played too many minutes and, and struggled to really create and play our best football. We got that win against Liverpool, which was so important after four games without a victory and three without, without a goal. And it's put us four points off of top. So actually, if, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, and ifs and buffs and all the rest of it, if we had, say, beaten Fulham, we'd be two points off. So we've had a bad spell, and now we're straight back in the hunt for, for those European places. We've got that two-week break. It really does put Southampton in a good position ahead of what is a tricky run of fixtures, as you mentioned. What are your thoughts on what this squad and what this team are capable of for the second half of the season under Hassan at all. And to go on to a second point, what do you think is potentially needed or, or likely in the January transfer window to, to maybe help give us that push for the rest of the season? Well, I think a point I just want to make quickly is we're all, con we, you know, we all consider Southampton were on a bit of a, a bad spell, but I think they still only lost one in seven. So doesn't that just tell you how far how far they've come. In terms of going forward uh, the rest of the season, I've said before and I still stick to it, if I was a Southampton supporter, I would be disappointed if they did not finish inside the top eight, especially after the start they've had. And you look at other teams that you'd think would be in and around that position that are maybe struggling a little bit. I think there's a real opportunity there. I think the top four is probably a, a push too far. Um, the cream tends to rise to the top and... I think that will certainly be the case for the, for the rest of the season. I can't see the, the top four changing too much. But certainly in and around those European, European spots is where they should be aiming. And there's no reason why, in the, the way the league is this season, it takes one good run and then you're almost sort of not guaranteed those spots, but it's going to be hard work for you to lose them because every team is under so much stress due to the, the intense nature. So if you can be one of those that puts a, a run of maybe four wins in six or, or something like that, then that just puts you in such an amazing stead. And we've seen Southampton take points off good teams already this season. Okay, Villa, Villa are coming back quite strong, but Southampton have shown that they can score four against Villa away from home. So there's no reason why they can't do that at home. So they're the games you want to be winning if I was a Southampton player I'd look at those games and think we definitely should be beating the likes of Villa let's have another go at Wolves um, Wolves don't concede many but you know they're playing at St Mary's so there's got to be a good chance that Southampton can try and dominate that game beating Liverpool is a bonus though you know, if you've got six points or 
seven points, whatever, from when you play the, the top three or top four teams throughout season, you just see those, see those as bonus points, but you want to be beating those teams in and around you. And if Southampton can do that and can go on and beat the likes of Newcastle again, you know, avenge the Crystal Palace defeat and beat Crystal Palace and beat those teams. And I, I don't think going to Leicester is going to be too much of a challenge. Leicester are a weird team at the moment. There's absolutely every chance. If Southampton have a two-week break as well, going into that Leicester game, there's no reason why they can't beat Leicester. Leicester haven't been that great at home uh, under Brendan Rodgers this season. So for me, there's so much opportunity and scope for them to definitely finish inside the top eight. I'd be really disappointed if they don't finish inside the top eight. It's just a case of where they finish in that top eight. And I honestly do think sort of from sixth, maybe fifth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth is, is certainly up, to, up for grabs. Fifth may be a little bit more difficult, but sixth, sixth to eighth should really be achievable for Southampton. And in terms of how they... What can they do in the in January to go about and push on for the for the rest of the season? I, I remember when I spoke to Matt Crocker when he um, did a piece with the Athletic, and you know his target was to have three players essentially for every position. And in a lot of areas of the pitch, they have that already. You know, we've seen Ward Prowse, Diallo, Romelu. You know, they've got so many centre backs. There's so many uh, different attacking players they can use. But fullback is obviously an area an area where they're they're very weak. Um, they've only got Carl Walker-Peters and Ryan Bertrand. If one of those got injured, then you know, God forbid what would happen. Of course, they've got Jan Valerie, but my information is that he is a player that they would be open to letting go to go and play some football. Obviously, Michael Obafemi was going to be going on loan uh, until, or was set to go on loan until he picked up that injury that's going to keep him quite a long time. So there is that, but I was talking to a, a good contact uh, regarding the January transfer window and sort of Southampton, and it was a case of it's difficult at the moment to say, let's say Brandon Williams, who was a player they admire. He's someone they wanted in the summer. Brandon Williams went to Wollongong and Solskjaer and said, I want to go to Southampton. Ollie said, no, we're going to play you. Trust us. That just hasn't happened. He hasn't played for Man United. But the way it was explained to me is if you're Man United, why would you let Brandon Williams go right now when you've got two cup games coming up? There's increased, you know, more people are testing positive for coronavirus at the moment. And more squads are being hit with injuries due to the, the nature of this season. So you'd wait until you got those games out of the way and then maybe think, OK, well, now we can let someone like Brandon go out on loan. And of course, Southampton aren't put, you know, placing all their bets on Brandon Williams. They will, of course, be lining up other targets for that fullback area. But what is obviously unique about Brandon is he's young. He can play either side. So he provides cover for both Bertrand and Walker-Peters. And I think... You know, had we not seen that performance from Bertrand at, at the Liverpool game, where he was fantastic, he looked a bit leggy uh, in the previous games. He looked a bit tired, um, which is understandable. You know, he's the other side of 30 now. He's obviously a very, very good footballer and does the, the, the simple thing so very well. I mean, half the time he doesn't need to look like he's trying because he's got so much experience. But it would be good having someone come in and just even if they weren't going to play. And that's the kind of thing you hear about Brandon Williams. Well, why would he come from Man United's bench to sit on our bench? Well, he's one spot closer to playing at Southampton than he would be at Man United. So he's got one fewer fullback to, to get in front of. And it would be good for the likes of Kyle Walker-Peters and Ryan Bertrand, for as good as Walker-Peters has been, how much better could he be if he had a genuine competition for that, for that position? I'm not saying Brandon Williams will come in and sort of dislodge either of those. But if he's there, then there's certainly a conversation to be had. But again, as I say, the, the expectation is that 
if any kind of deal were to happen, it, it seems as though it wouldn't happen sort of right now or imminently. It would perhaps extend into the sort of second half of the window, which when it was broken down to me does make sort of perfect sense. And it's the same for Southampton. If Southampton continue, obviously we've seen Alex McCarthy uh, test positive for coronavirus. If, I don't know, Carl Walker-Peters tests positive for coronavirus midway through January and there hasn't been a replacement uh, brought in, then Jan Valerie's going to have to play. And at that point, do you then loan out Jan Valerie because you need him? So it, it's a really, really weird window. It's just a bizarre, a, a really bizarre tran uh, transfer window in the sense that you could do something like let a player go out on loan, and then two days later that comes back to bite you because you've had an injury and now your other fullbacks tested positive for COVID. So then what do you do? You're stuck with I don't know. What do you do? Put James Ward-Prowse back into playing right back or Jack Stevens at left back, which is which isn't exactly ideal for any everyone involved. So I do think there there will be business done. It's just a case of when and if other clubs kind of get past a certain point in the window where they think, okay, we we should be okay now with what we've got. We've made it through another busy spell of games. We probably won't need him going forward for the rest of the season. And that extra dimension that you talk about and COVID has, has added so many extra dimensions throughout the season, is one that maybe a lot of people wouldn't think about because uh, you, know, you just kind of play your fantasy football and think, oh, he'd look good here, let's sign him. That, you think, really would affect the loan side of things. Um, and I'm, am I right in assuming that from what you've heard and from your sources that Slampton aren't looking to spend any money on, on bringing anyone like Brandon Williams or even... Damari Gray or Hamza Chowdhury or all those players they've been linked with over the windows. Are we specifically talking about loans? Because if you buy someone, then then that offers on the table, and that's you know, presumably that's just immediate. Hamza Chowdhury is an interesting one. He was obviously on the club's list in the summer, um, but I'm sure Leicester would have wanted quite a, a sizable fee for him, and Southampton ended up getting Diallo. So I wouldn't see any sense in in going in for him. Brandon Williams, how much is he going to cost to get out of United on a permanent deal? Quite a bit, I imagine, just because he's played for Man United and he's got he signed a sizable contract last year. I think it was they're not going to give him away for nothing. Um, I think Ralph has spoken about the fact that if it were to be a deal, like a loan deal, then he'd like it like the Kyle Walker Peters one, where he came in, had that six months, and then Southampton had the option to to buy him. Now. It, that really depends on whether Man United on Brandon Williams, for example, would be open to giving Southampton that option to buy him. And really, I mean, okay, they've they've obviously hit a very good good spell of form. Uh, one of the concerns raised to me by someone I know who is quite in with Man United was they obviously don't like strengthening their rivals. We saw that with Sergio Romero and the fact they blocked his loan move to Everton. So at that time, you know, they, they saw Southampton as a bit of a rival. Of course, they've now moved up to the, you know, go level of go level on points with Liverpool, the top of the league. So they may not see Southampton as a direct rival, but it, the argument is there. Well, would you want to strengthen a team that, you know, we have four or five bad results, Southampton could overtake us. So there is that argument. Damari Gray, I think, is an interesting one. He is a player that Southampton have been really interested in before. They wanted him at the time he ended up going to Leicester. He's got six months left on his contract. So it's one that if he's, I mean, I don't know Damari Gray, I don't know his people, but if he wants to come to Southampton or he's desperate to come to Southampton, then 
for Southampton's point of view, you'd be better off waiting until the summer to get it done because then you haven't got to pay pay a fee. Although, as someone said to me, there's no such thing as a, as a free transfer because then you obviously pay a little bit of a sign-in bonus and then the wages tend to be a little bit higher because you've not had to pay a big fee. But he is a player they've looked at before. Um, whether that is something that would go ahead this month, I'm not entirely sure. Um, it could be one that is maybe explored in the summer, but that, of course, depends on a lot of things. You know, someone could come in for Damari Gray tomorrow and he could go there. So that's more of a sort of let's wait and see how, how that develops at the moment. I don't think there's any plans to bring him in this month. In terms of permanent deals, I'd be surprised if there was you know, significant money spent this month, just given the no one knows how long. Of course, we've got a vaccine now, but no one knows how long coronavirus is going to be around for. Um, Southampton are losing money every single month. So going out and spending sort of 15, 10, 15, 20 million pound or whatever probably wouldn't be the most sensible thing to do in the world right now. Um, if you can get past this season and finish in a really good position, then that, of course, gives you a bit of extra money at the end of the league in, pri in prize money. And you may be able to get one of those players who you've had on loan and do a permanent deal for them. So I think that it's much better for the club if they look at that loan market because who knows where we're going to be in six months' time. And I think it's, it was, um, you mentioned about Damari Gray and, and we obviously know that his contract at the moment is up in the summer. And the talk was that Saints would maybe be looking to, to do a loan till the end of the season, and which... And, and, and maybe even discuss now a, a sort of a pre-agreement for signing in the summer with the injury to Musa Gineppo and the hamstring injury. We don't know how how bad that is. Plus the Redmond injury, where he he seems to be out for a little while. Suddenly we become a little bit short in that department, and I just wonder if that might speed things up from from Hasenhutl's point of view. Uh, whether it be Gray or maybe someone else. The other thing you've got to really remember is that there is a limit to the amount of domestic loans that Stanton can have. We've already got Theo Walcott and uh, you can only have two. So yeah, they, they wouldn't be able to loan, for instance, both Gray and, uh, and Brandon Williams. So <laughs> there are a lot of things to, to contemplate. I don't think any of us foresee it being a, a really busy window. I think Hassan Huttel is has got something special and everything's working. But how many times have we seen it before where a team is doing so well and really punching above their weight and getting 100% out of the squad that they've got. And then the window comes along and they don't strengthen. And then that team sort of tires and they go from top four contenders to kind of eighth, ninth, tenth. And, uh, and those teams that do manage to do well often bring in maybe one or two that can just cover those positions. And like you said, fullback is the, uh, is the main one. And we've been talking about fullback cover on this podcast for well all season really haven't we Tom with Carl Walker-Peters and Bertrand playing pretty much every game Walker-Peters has been a fantastic addition but he had an injury when he first joined Bertrand is one of the older players in the squad um, and he's been out maybe a year ago he was out for a very long time and no one seemed to know where he was it is possible that they could play against Leicester and one of them could get an injury for a few months and and like Dan said um, with them relying on Valerie or Vokins to step up or, or Walprouse to play out of position. So if, if, I, if I was a betting man, I'd think that we would bring someone in on loan like Brandon Williams that could cover maybe a Williams or a Yedlin or just that sort of player that can cover both positions. But I wouldn't really be expecting anything else apart from maybe a, a discussion with Damari Gray who we could get on a free transfer 
at the end of the window. And Dan, a couple of questions I wanted to ask just on the point of the uh, of the window. We talked about incomings, but obviously the the other side of the coin is potential outgoings. And I know this particular topic doesn't it doesn't have to be restricted to a, a transfer window, but uh, a, a, another point that would make a good period for Saints is if they could tie up the contracts of a couple of key players and obviously it's been going round in circles and I'm not sure how much of an update you could possibly provide on the likes of Bertrand Orings because as far as we can hear in the we hear in the media from different sources it's a case of stuff is going on and nothing's been agreed so far and as soon as something is agreed or isn't then I'm sure we'll know about it is there any anything in the pipeline or is it just a case of keep going round in circles and we wait to see what the outcome is <laughs> that's the, the million dollar question uh, Danny Ings and Ryan Bertrand going to sign new contracts I think uh, Ryan spoke to the media I'm not sure when it was now it wasn't that long ago maybe 10 sort of 14 days it was around the Christmas time and said he wants to stay at Southampton so from my point of view if he wants to stay and the, the club are in talks with Ryan which they are you'd like to think it would be fairly straightforward um, but for for a certain reason or perhaps several reasons it doesn't seem to to be that straightforward in terms of Danny again he's a he's another one the, the club of you know Ralph's made no secret of the fact that the club have made him a fantastic offer um, so it's a case of they've made that offer does does he want to sign it I know sort of going earlier in the season Southampton were fairly relaxed about the situation they there was a kind of a confidence that, that that contract would be signed but it hasn't been signed yet so going forward that of course is at, that is I'm sure Southampton fans if Danny Ng signed a new long-term contract I think that would probably compensate if they didn't get a player on loan I think many Southampton fans would be so much happier with that than the likes of someone coming on, on loan for six months it's it's a really it's a difficult uh, difficult one because you know, we can only say so much, and that that's the fact that we know Ings has a contract on the table. So only Danny Ings will really know why why that hasn't been signed yet. So I mean, I don't speak on behalf of Danny Ings, so it's not for me to say why he may not have signed it. I may no. have heard certain reasons for for what the delay may be, but you know, to to protect my sources, I. You know, I keep that to myself. Um, Ryan Bertrand again is is the interesting one. It's and with Ryan, it's a case of at the moment because he's in such kind of a a good a good vein of form. He's hungry. He's he's not playing for a new contract, but you know, he's in six months' time. He's going to be he he could negotiate to go to Monaco tomorrow if he wanted to and join them in the summer. I'm not saying that that's on the table or anything. Or <laughs> someone you know on Twitter will caption that and Ryan Bertrand to Monaco. That, that, that I've not heard he's gone to Monaco, so so ignore that. The minute you, you know, with Ryan, what, what length contract do you give him? You know, he's thirty-one. Do you give him three years? Do you offer him two years? But does he want three years? Do you offer him three years? But he may want four years. It's it's a really kind of fine fine one to judge. And you know, we saw Shane Long get given a two-year contract, and hindsight's a wonderful thing. Shane's obviously a fantastic pro, but. Fast forward, you know, however many months ago it was he signed that contract. Shane Long, Southampton just don't play the way that suits Shane Long anymore. So, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Would you have handed Shane Long a two-year contract if you knew this was going to be the case? Absolutely not. 
So how do you know, how do you then get it right against Bertrand? And I think that is, that's a really key question um, that unfortunately I, I don't know the answer to. But no. it's a case of what do you give him? Do you offer him two years, three years, four years or whatever? And what does Bertrand want and what does Southampton want? Then they need to meet in the middle and, you know, hopefully go from there. And a contract for maybe a, another player who signing from the summer who we thought would be good for nostalgia, but we didn't realise just how much of an impact he would be making. Obviously, he's a Theo Walcott free agent next summer. Do you think, do you see Southampton making an easy summer signing in uh, at the end of the season and bringing him in permanently? Well, the, the, the stuff I hear on Theo is that there's Southampton in the kind of position where, you know, they're not in a, in a hurry to, to sort of sign him. Of course, they can't sign him until the summer anyway. As, as Bertrand could, Theo could negotiate and go to, you know, Monaco. Let's bring up Monaco again. He, he could negotiate, sign a free contract to join Monaco in the summer. Now, I think Theo is Theo's different because he's at a, a stage in his career where realistically, you know, if we're being honest, he's not going to sign for Liverpool, Man United, Tottenham, Chelsea. You know, it didn't you know, he's basically been allowed to run down his contract at Everton. So at that point, it's then where do you go? Um, and for me, Southampton are in that kind of category of clubs below the, the, the top six or top seven or whatever they are, where you'd want to go and play. They've got a fantastic manager. You know, they're, they're playing a, a good brand of football. The facilities are obviously fantastic at Staplewood. And there's that element of he started his career there. So it, why not sort of come full circle? With Theo, he's obviously on very good money at Everton. You know, he's on over £100,000 a week. Southampton famously don't pay that sort of money. So that then becomes a, a question that if Southampton want him, would Theo be willing to sort of take a bit of a hit? And you know what? From everything you hear about him, I mean, he sounds like a, a really good guy. At this stage in his career, is money going to be a big factor? You know, when you're maybe... 22, 23, and you're looking for the those contracts that are going to set you up for life. Theo's had them. You know, he's been through that. He's done very well for himself, I'm sure. He's probably got a lot more money in the bank than I have. Um, so it's a case of, at that point, what does Theo really want? Does Theo want to go abroad and play in Spain or Italy or France? Or does he want to come back to Southampton on a permanent deal? And what does Southampton want at the end of the summer? Do they want to sign Theo? and give, what is he, 32, 31, 32? Something like that, yeah. And then what kind of contract do you give him? And how much do you pay him a week? Those are all the questions that, you know, will have to be answered. And as I said, the way I understand it at the moment is that you know, they're not being answered now. Let's wait and see how, it, how the season progresses. Um, but from Theo's point of view, I, I, I think Southampton would, if Southampton do offer a contract or say to him, look, we want to sign you, I think it would be a really attractive attractive one to take take them up on I'm, I'm optimistic as a Samson fan maybe naively but on all three if it, starting with Theo you, you mentioned that he's on 100 grand a week at Everton now but it's hard to compare what Samson might offer to that because by the time it, by the time that contract's up he hasn't got that 100 grand offer and I don't see anyone offering him that so I don't think Samson have to really compete with that and I think also you mentioned I think there are certain things that money don't buy for Walcott coming back down here where he's had so many good memories and family and, and, and friends and, and, and also 
it depends what time, type of pro you are. Are you someone who wants to earn money but barely play? Or do you want to earn a bit less money but play some of the best football you've, you've played, maybe even in your career? Um, he's been completely reborn down here and I think he's, he's really enjoying his football, which is something that Walcott maybe hasn't done for a number of years. And you, you know, it's a ticking clock on, um, on a player's footballing career before he knows it. A few years time he'll be mid-30s and he won't have that turn of speed and maybe he won't be able to play at this level so to play in the Premier League and play so well at such a high level you know to me it just seems and I don't know Theo Walcott but it seems to me like this is the move that that he would want. Danny Ings you can kind of in some ways compare because he's also a local boy I think it was a really really attractive loan move and then permanent move when he came down there in the first place the only difference with Danny Ings is he's at the peak of his career and he could potentially get a move to one of those big clubs. I think the only thing that maybe would deter them is that he's, he's started to get a couple of niggling injuries again and what happened with Liverpool might be in the back of people's minds. You'd have to spend a lot of money to buy Danny Ings and maybe that would put people off. Whereas if his contract runs out, then you don't have to. Again, I don't know Danny Ings, but I would, I would like to think that he, he wouldn't be a sort of player who would deliberately run his contract down because I think he'd be quite appreciative of, of what Southampton have done for his career and it's a club that's close to his heart. So I'd like to think that both those players would sign, whether Danny Ings just signs an extension of a year or something like that to, to, to maybe not help the club out but not sell them down the river and, and, and deliberately run down his contract because to Southampton he's, he's priceless. And then Bertrand is is one where, like you said, he's the other side of 30. I believe in those comments that he made, he said he wanted to, to end his career at Southampton and then stay with Southampton in, in another capacity, whether that be coaching or something like that. So so he's put his cards on the table in, in the media. I just think in this day and age, it all takes longer because agents are involved. And, and how easy is an answer for the media of... I don't know, my agent's dealing with that and how often do we hear it? And I think from an agent's point of view, the longer they let it run, the more anxious the club is going to get and they're going to hope to maybe eke a little bit of money for for their client. And the other thing is, you don't know how much they're asking for. I think agent's fees are such a stickler for, for clubs. So right now, I think Southampton would now be in more of a hurry than they were in the summer when you said they were quite confident with the Ings deal. I don't think the player's in a massive hurry because even if they want to stay at the club, they know their intentions. And I think the agents probably are playing hardball and it won't be until the summer when they get that break, especially with Walcott and Bertrand who won't be playing internationally. Um, I think I think then is when you can maybe sit down and, and say, right, these are the kind of final offers. But I do see reasons for all three to stay at the club. Um, and I'd be I'd be really surprised if the likes of Ings would let their contract run down and leave for free. Um, how long has Ings How long has Ings got on his contract? Is it eighteen months? I think it's something like eighteen months. He's yeah yeah got the rest of the season and then all of next year. So he's still got a fair bit of time. But obviously, if you let it drag into the the final year, you sort of give yourself a bit of a hoibier situation. Exactly. But then I guess if you are if you are Danny Ings and you think you've got you've still got it in you, which undoubtedly his form shows that you you can play for it. You probably can play for a, a top side. If you're if you're in that situation and you think you could still go to a, a Man United or, or whatever and 
do a job there, would you tie yourself down to a, a long-term contract now? Because let's say he signed a big new four-year deal. That is Danny Ings then, because no club really is going to pay 80, 85 million pound, which if he was on a big contract now would probably be his sort of market value. I mean, look how many goals he scores, but for heaven's sake. Are Man United going to pay 80 odd million pound for Danny Ings with when he's, let's say, in 18 months time, when he's had those injuries, he's then going to be sort of around 30, 31, give him a four-year contract and he's got no sell-on value whatsoever. I'd be very surprised if they are. But would Man United, to, to solve a problem, spend, and now I'm just making these figures up, £30 million in the summer to, to fill, a, fill a hole on Danny Ings, Man United can afford to take that risk. That is a, a question, I think, for... The, I think that's just a point that is worth making at times because... One, if Danny Ings does sign this contract, unless there's a release clause, then really that puts to an end any chance of him realistically going to, to a big club. Um, I'm not saying Southampton are a small club by any means, but you know that top tier of Premier League clubs will not come in, I don't think, with the sort of bid that it would take for Southampton to accept to let him go. Um, so I think that is a another consideration that probably has to be made from Danny's camp. And I'm sure it's one they're probably talking about. Yeah. And like, like the other two, this, this is really the last deal, the last big deal uh, of their careers. And, and, and they're, they'll be looking to make that as big a deal as they possibly can. Um, I know he was, he was maybe younger at the time, but to maybe play devil's advocate, you could, you could potentially look at someone like Virgil van Dijk who did sign a new deal and then Liverpool still spent 80 million on him um, later on. But we're in a we're in a different world now where maybe money isn't there. And Man United haven't been shy of spending money. You know, the recent acquisitions yeah. show that. But if if they were um if they were interested in Danny Ings and and maybe the player knew that, then then there are certainly easier ways and cheaper ways for them to go about it. But like you said, it, it it's it's all about where that interest comes in and, and we haven't really heard any of it. There was a bit of interest, supposedly, from from Tottenham in the summer um, after such a good season, but we haven't heard anything going into into January. But as you say, with a year left on your contract and Danny Ings keeps up his form, there'll be no shortage of of suitors doing exactly what what Tottenham did with Hoybjerg, as you said, Tom. Dan, one transfer that we haven't really talked about, not football, is yourself. You're, you're now with The Athletic. We saw you uh, when we were doing the AD in the, in the Saints press room. And of course, you were at the, the Echo at that point, were you? How have you, for, well, belated, belated congratulations on getting the part of The Athletic. How's it been covering Saints this season? I know it must, when the team are doing so well, it makes the job even more enjoyable. But how, for you, as a, as a personally, how's the year been so far um, covering Southampton? Yeah, it's been uh, a fantastic move. Um, I've, I've really, really, really enjoyed my time. So I joined the Athletic in August uh, and it took a bit of a while to get used to because I was obviously on my own at the Echo. I was the, a one-man sports desk, essentially, where you're doing on, stuff for online. You're then subbing a newspaper and you're doing it. You're doing everything. So to And you just don't have any time to phone people and basically speak to the people you want to be speaking to or sit down and do interviews with people you might you may find interesting to, to hear their story 
So to come to the athletic and have that sort of freedom and a bit of a blank canvas to, you know, have the time to basically phone people, you know, a journalist's job is to phone people and get information. And at the echo that was, I wasn't able to do that as much as I, I wanted to. And it was not soul destroying to a certain extent, but you know, there was, obviously Adam Leach was at the echo for, for so long and he's someone I admire greatly I really really admire Adam and then before him you had Graham Hiley who I know I know well I admire him and then I think before him you had Bob Brunskill I mean I don't know Bob but that's three guys covering Saints and then I was the fourth essentially so it's one of those weird things where you're thinking oh do I do I want to leave when you get that job offer it's like all of a sudden you become so comfortable where you are and you start thinking all the bad things that could go wrong and it's like well I'm in a I'm in a brilliant position, you know, I'm only the sort of fourth person to, to cover Saints for the Daily Echo in God knows how many years. And then given the, the state of, you know, local papers at the moment and all the difficulties, it was, the Athletic just came at the, at the right time. And I think it was a, a risk worth taking. It's something I've really enjoyed since I've been there. So yeah, it's going, for me, it's going really well, whether people you know think it is or not I'm not too sure but my bosses seem happy and hopefully some the subscribers are happy as well yeah it's been enjoyable reading some of your stuff as well and because of course um Saints also had uh, last year as well a popular uh, person covering in Carl Anker who we're happy to have on the podcast in, in the future did you do you know Carl at all or from speaking to him in the press room and did he I don't know you've covered obviously you've covered Saints for the Echo for a considerable time as well but did you speak to Carl at all about actually the transfer over to the Athletic and what it would entail? Oh, absolutely. So I, I obviously got to know Carl um, in a world where you could go to press conferences and, you know, mingle and talk to talk to other journalists. I got to know him in his first season uh, at the at the Athletic when he arrived in Southampton. And one thing that, you know, I'm not shy to to admit it, Carl is absolutely fantastic. He could watch a game of football. And he would see things that I wouldn't see. I've got no shame in that whatsoever. Um, and that was something that, you know, I actually raised myself when I had a chat with, you know, my, my boss boss. Um, but, you know, I can't do that stuff that Carl does. I can't look at a game and, you know, he just sees things that I don't know. I, I just don't see that other people may not see. I mean, his, his analysis is just fantastic. So, you know, even I of course spoke to Carl when the, the sort of when the athletic uh, approached me it was you know he was one of the first first people I spoke to because I knew I was going to get an honest opinion of what it was like and you know I raised my concerns about you know I can't do like tactics or, or stuff like that that you can and he was like no but you can do the other side of stuff that perhaps I'm not so strong on and that's you know from where I had that sort of foundation of the echo you know that I was able to you know, kind of bring those contacts with me to the athletic. Um, whereas Carl was basically starting from ground zero. Um, and in that year, he did a fantastic job to do the content he did. And now we see him at Man United and, you know, he's covering the team he supports and he's doing a, you know, a bloody brilliant job at it. I mean, like I say, I read his tactic stuff and I, I just get lost. I, I don't know, he's just so unique. And, you know, he's doing his you know, book for Marcus Rashford. So he's just, he's absolutely killing it at the moment. He's a a brilliant guy, a brilliant journalist. So I, I can only say good things about him. And he was really, he'd been really helpful 
in the kind of the build up to me sort of coming across to the athletic and even since I've joined you know it's nice because of the world we live in I've not you know I've not met really anyone I've not met you know I speak to my editor every day I've never met him before you know in a normal world I would have met him by now so to to have met Carl <laughs> is a bonus because at least it's someone I know <laughs> Yeah, I suppose it, it, it's a bit like me. You know, I've got midway through the year, we got about six or seven members, new members of our team for for work, and I've never even seen their faces. I, I only I only just see their names on like, on like a Skype chat, and uh, so, I, so I've ne- I, we've spoken over like um, Webex or like team meetings or something like that. But it's strange in this world that we are that not to even shake their hand or just say hello in person. So, but no big move for you, and you spoke about how you know the differences from the from the echo in terms of how you're sort of doing multiple jobs at once and, to, and you didn't have the time to uh to call people maybe to do particular in-depth analysis different articles is that been the main difference for you between the echo and the athletic sort of that uh, maybe a bit more freedom to go down the route that you want to rather than sort of to just basically getting tied up over a lot of different <laughs> things at once yeah i mean i was getting concerned about how clicks online clicks were becoming you know the the be all or end all and adam leach was so good in the sense that he was so well connected so established at the echo that he was able to you know set the way that we were going to cover southampton now when he left i i tried to keep as many of those principles as possible but when you know for example you may be asked to to put a story up that you look at and you think well that's not really you know that's a connected to Southampton by the, the smallest of threads but when they say you know it's going to do well online that is a point that's a bit soul-destroying because that to me isn't journalism you know journalism isn't saying Southampton want to sign so-and-so according to a report in the you know somewhere else you know I wanted to be able to have the time to make my phone calls and find that story out for myself so that has been a, a massive difference but what it was also been a massive difference is I've gone from working on my own to now being in a team of like 90, 95 people and the the support structure is just fantastic. So if I find out something that might be a little bit newsy, you know, I can go to David Ornstein, who is one of the most respected kind of news journal- sports news journalists in the country and ask him for help or have you heard this, David, or could you check this out, David? Now, I mean, I don't mean I'm doing that every single day, but to have that kind of there is is brilliant and if i'm stuck on something i can call my editor so it's it's just fantastic um i mean at the echo there were times when you feel like you may be kind of drowning under all the work and there was no one to sort of turn to and ask for help but the support network at the athletic is just you know it's phenomenal and i mean i'm only 25 still so i've still got so much more learning to, to to do and the athletic for me feels like the perfect place to do that and when I can call the likes of David Ornstein or, you know, like Ollie Kay or Danny Taylor, um, Matt Slater, who does our sort of sports investigations and sports news. It's just, that is for someone like me, who's still kind of finding their feet and trying to establish myself. That is just, you know, that, that for me is money can't buy. Um, these are the most experienced journalists in the country. So to be working with them for me is a, is a massive privilege to be able to to not use them is maybe the wrong word but the to have the resources to be able to like you said if you if, if you have your sources and you get some information that if true is 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 a big news story and and then you can go to someone like david on stain and say 
look, is there any way that you can maybe try and confirm this for me? And he, he maybe has a source and you know, says, if, if, if it's true, this guy will know. And then, and it is, then that's maybe something that A, you, you wouldn't have had previously, but B, wouldn't have had the time to find that out or, or to go ahead and confirm it. It's something that's interesting to me, interesting and maybe frustrating and, and to some Saints fans as well. And, and it would be worth maybe asking you um, as an investigative journalist now and, 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 and what you may know is um, the enigma, uh, the myth, uh, the legend that is Mohamed Salisu and, uh, and, and how just as it seems that he was about to, to potentially don the Saints shirt for the first time, he A, reportedly got an injury and then B has managed to get the game against Shrewsbury called off so he doesn't have to appear. What what information do you have? Because it was kept very quiet for, for a long time. He signed back. Well, his signing took long enough as it was. He was, he was supposedly um, done and dusted in July. Finally ended up being confirmed early August. And then what with supposed quarantine and, and other things didn't actually properly get announced until almost the season's start. And once we saw him in training, he, he then um, hasn't really been involved with the squad until recently. And the talk is that under Harsen Hurtle, you could be a good player, but the way in which the team plays and every position is an education um, and, and you have to be able to do specific things. And Harsen Hurtle signs players to improve, not to come in and improve the team immediately. I mean, we see that with Che Adams, for instance. He did come into the team in and out, but but after a year, we're starting to see this kind of player he can be. Musa Gineppo has taken time to get into the team, um, injuries permitting as well. With with Diallo, he's still on the fringes and he's only young. With Selisu, it seemed that the signing of him was something that fans and the club have been waiting for for two years, for maybe four windows, to get that centre-back that Kevin Danzo wasn't and Vestergaard hadn't been at the time. And we finally got him in um, and it seemed like it was it was the signing, the most important signing that Ralph had made and we still haven't seen him play. Do you know much that, that maybe <laughs> the rest of us don't or what, what, what sort of things have you heard since his signing as, as to why he, he hasn't been included ahead of Vestergaard, Stevens or Bednarak? Well, he certainly exists. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I, can, I can say that we'll with confidence. That, we'll yeah. put that in our tagline for the Twitter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Salasu does exist, breaking news. Um, so, no, he obviously, so he joined and then, as you said, he had to go into to quarantine for, for two weeks. So he was in, in a hotel for, for you know, half a month, basically, before he could leave. And then, of course, as you said, it's it's then you then have to learn the system, and some players learn it quicker than others. Now, I'm not saying Salisu is a slow learner by any stretch of imagination, but it was put to me by someone I trust that he'd actually arrived with an injury and had Southampton sort of played him in those early early weeks of the season, then that could have, you know, had bit of an adverse effect on his going forward basically so I was told that information and then you it's a difficult one because then you're in the situation well this is you know it's med, it's sort of medical information so really although the the actual extent of what the injury was was never 
told to me you you sort of feel a responsibility actually well I don't know Salasu but would he want it out there that he may have a, a, a an injury and then in a press conference uh, you know a, a few weeks down the line or whatever Ralph said he signed injured so they knew he was injured when he signed so then that became public knowledge and then from there it was a case of getting him fit and Southampton were in a position this season especially where they've had Bednarek, Stevens, and Vestergaard you know if you're being realistic there's absolutely no rush to there's no point rushing Salasu into the team Fulham on Boxing Day you know in hindsight had he not had this injury could you argue that maybe we should have played him but then you've got to think about that would have been his first minute you know, that would have been his first game in English football. You're throwing him right into the deep end against, uh, you know, Fulham away from home on Boxing Day. So would that have been fair? What about Jack Stevens? What 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 message would that send Jack Stevens if Salasu, who's not played a single minute of football, gets bit picked ahead of you? So these are, you know, they're obviously all kind of choices that, that Ralph has to make. And it, it's safe to say that this cup tie, which is currently being you know, sort of talked about by the FA's decision board as, as we speak, that Shrewsbury game was looked to be Salasu's chance to, to come in and it would have been a perfect opportunity for him. I mean, I, I agree with the fact that he shouldn't have been picked for the Fulham game. I wouldn't have picked him for the West Ham game. And had he been fit, I wouldn't have played him against Liverpool anyway. I really don't think that there's a, a need to play him straight away. It's as you say, one of the, the, the one thing that worries me ever so slightly is that fans perhaps uh, are looking at him and thinking he's gonna he could be Virgil Van Dyke. He's like twenty twenty one years old. I mean, I think that's a, a long way off. But then, of course, the longer he doesn't play, the the more questions get asked, and that kind of mystique grows. It's it's gone from this guy is going to be absolutely fantastic to what's wrong with this guy? Why isn't he? You know, why have we signed a dud? Now, I don't think that is the case. The, the stuff I hear from sort of within the dressing room is it's all positive. Um, they all say in training, he, you know, people speak sort of very highly of him. He's just not had that, that break yet where he's managed to get himself into the first team and Shrewsbury looked like the best opportunity for that. Um, so if, he can, if, they, if the game is to be rescheduled and he is fit by the time that game is rescheduled, then we could see him at that point um, playing there. But let's be honest, he doesn't get in the starting 11 ahead of Vestergaard when Vestergaard is fit or Bednarek. So what, what do you do? Do you want to see Ralph drop Vestergaard or Bednarek to then play Salasu? And then that, that then kind of ruins everything. So I remember when I spoke to Oriol Romeo for a piece on The Athletic earlier in the, uh, towards the end of last year, you know, one, one quote that stood out was, you know, I could shut my eyes and I know exactly where Ralph wants me to run. And that is what Ralph expects from all of his players. It's such a kind of complex system to learn. I mean, I spoke to Kyle Walker-Peters just before Christmas and, you know, just listening to him explain what Ralph wants, it's just crazy. And Kyle said himself, like, I still make mistakes. I still, although I've obviously come on leaps and bounds from when I first joined and when I didn't really understand it, um, there are still times during a game where I, I make mistakes or I do something that Ralph doesn't want me to do. And you can look at Kyle Walker-Peters performance and you think, well, he's been brilliant. But if there's things he's still doing wrong, it's how much has Salasu got to learn. And of course, you learn more playing. Um, but I don't think there'll be many fans that would want to see Bednarek or Vestergaard dropped 
um, to, to give this guy a chance, play him in the cup games and then see how he gets on. I mean, it's just bad luck that he happened to pick up a, another injury. Um, and, you know, he's still a, you know, as, as frustrating as that can be for supporters, I'm sure it's more frustrating for Salisu. I'm sure it's really frustrating. I'm sure he probably sees that, you know, what, what may be said, um, you know, about sort of does he exist or, or, or stuff like that. I mean, I don't know him. I've never spoken to him, never met him. So, I mean, I don't know what he's like as a character, but he's just moved over here from, from Spain. It's probably a bit of a weird time to move over anyway because of what's going on. And then you're adjusting to this mad system where everyone has their roles and you need to know your role better than you kind of know the palm of your hand. So I think with him, it's just a case of, look, he from what I hear, he's got the potential to be, you know, to be a kind of good, uh, you know, a bit of a stalwart for the, for the, for the next years to come. Let's just give him that time. And hopefully that, that comes to fruition. Of course, it can be frustrating because fans want to see what all the fuss is about because he was obviously signed to much fanfare. And as you said, Callum, that the defense was an area that, that needed strengthening, but then Vestergaard has surprised everyone. So Bednarek is never going to be dropped would you guys be happy seeing Vestergaard drop to give Salisu a game? And then what happens if Saints lose that game 4-0? Then what happens to Salisu? It's a really tough one, tough one to judge, I think. Um, personally, I feel quite sorry for him. I'm sure he doesn't want to be injured. Um, so it's it's a difficult one. It just it just seems, um, and, and you're right, I think Vestergaard coming in and being the player we never thought he could be, completely changed things. I think if that hadn't happened, we would have seen Salisu by now. But it's been five months and I think I think it just seems really strange. And we understand that this is one of the, the most intricate coach, uh, coaching and, and, and ways of playing. And clearly, he Ralph wants him and the youth players to, to know their specific role inside out before they play. But to sign a player... Who came with so many so many plaudits and and what was spent maybe ten eleven twelve million on him from a player who was playing first team football in La Liga uh, for all of last season it just it, it seems I I, know, I never I don't ever remember a player being dealt with so delicately after such a a fee um, for a player that has been playing at the top level you, you talk a lot about. How uh, you know if if he came in and had a poor game, what happens to him? Or you know, and how many times have we seen players come in and they they play well or they play badly? But it, it almost seems like he, he's being dealt with like he's really quite fragile, and they they want to put him in at the, the exact right time. And I think a lot of fans just kind of think we've been waiting for a centre back for for a long time. Luckily, Vestergaard has, has almost become a new signing this season. Um, the guy we've signed in for a reason and I think it was was deemed kind of the saviour because it was a position we really needed maybe he's not that maybe he is like you said a long-term project as are most of the signings Hassan Little makes um, and the intention was never to to start him he came in as a fourth choice centre-back to learn the role to improve and to force his way into the first team um, it just seems so odd to have signed someone who was a first-choice centre-back at a top uh, division in Spain, playing so well and signed on that basis to not to only get onto the bench 
a few games ago and to still not have played a single minute. Um, I think it's unfortunate we went out of the Carabao Cup when we did because it was very early when he wasn't ready, when he was injured and he probably would have played in a cup game by now. But yeah, I, I think just the feeling, as you'd imagine, is is for, for a player to have signed for that money with that pedigree that he already has, despite his age, you'd expect to have at least have seen him come off the bench at some point or, or, or play a game. Um, and the longer he doesn't play, the bigger the kind of fanfare and the bigger um, the build-up is going to be for when he does play. And, and if he is quite, quite fragile, uh, you know, that could always work in the opposite way. But suddenly, like you said, what the positive is that centre-back has gone from being a position whereby it's costing us points every single week to suddenly we've got four centre-backs who who are all able to play. And even Jack Stevens comes in and he doesn't do everything right, Jack Stevens, but he's come into a team um, and con and conceded no goals in three games. I mean, part of a team that's just beaten the Premier League champions. And he's arguably, in fans' eyes, maybe the third or fourth choice centre-back. So, yeah, that's enough about Salisu. But it was just, uh, I thought whilst you were here, it would be a good to get some insight because it's been kept so under wraps, everything, by the club. For, for good reason, I imagine. Yeah, um, well, I think that I think that the club are probably conscious of the fact that they don't want to build build him up to be something that he may not be at the moment as well. I mean, that that could I'm not saying that is the case, but that could be their thinking, perhaps why you know, like like it's it's a really difficult one to judge, isn't it? Because like I say, the longer it goes on, the the more pressure that perhaps gets put on his shoulders, and it, it it's not. A, I'm sure it's not a good situation for for all involved. Fans want to see him. I'm sure he's desperate to play. I'm sure he doesn't want to be injured. I'm sure Ralph would, you know, like to give him a chance. It's just it looks like we're gonna have to all have to wait a little bit a little bit longer. I mean, I'm as keen to see him as you guys are. I think the, uh, the caption on this one when we put it out for Twitter will be. Um, Salasu does exist and is Bertrand heading to Monaco that will be the uh, <laughs> that'll be the double header <laughs> that will send uh, that will send uh, a few uh, <laughs> Southampton pages wild I think absolutely <laughs> you, you just think with the current situation when Salasu does make his first appearance you think have Southampton kept Vejard Foreign's shirt warm and washed ready for Salisu <laughs> to wear it coming onto the pitch whatever happened to that man Dan I realise we've kept you for quite some time but and I I don't want to end on a bad point, but I feel it's something that has to be discussed, even as like a, as a final point of the pod is. With the world right now, the situation that the UK is in, we've only a couple of days into a new lockdown. Players, as we've seen with the Shrewsbury game and many, many teams, there are, COVID is becoming more and more prevalent in the top leagues and everywhere, everywhere. But in terms of football, squads are suddenly becoming depleted and everyone's being affected. Currently, the, the last update we had was that they weren't considering a break. But do you personally think that we will get to the end of the season without some form of, uh, of, of pause? I think it's, uh, that's a really um, sort of tough, nuanced question to answer. At the moment, everything I hear is what basically you've just said, is that the Premier League has no desire whatsoever, as it stands, to, to have this kind of circuit breaker type thing. I think from speaking to people uh, sort of close to, close to the Premier League that they were quite keen for that, that story to go away. I'm not sure, you know, the Premier League clubs are, they kind of go through rigorous testing 
due to the nature of increased you know cases as we've seen with Alex McCarthy you know players will just will catch it you know they could be doing everything right but I mean there's a national lockdown now so realistically if they're going back to kind of their households then everyone in that household should really be sort of staying indoors unless it's to go out for essential items or or you know things like that so Southampton since that McCarthy positive test you know just to focus on Southampton they are you know they've increased their their testing they're, they're testing every single day now so they're doing everything they can to to ensure that football can go on and I think they are probably sort of the safest areas really I mean they're all in a in a bubble they're tested all the time all the staff that have like sort of have red zone access are tested all all the time so you'd like to think that Staplewood for example would be one of the most sort of COVID secure places there are and I'm sure that would be the same for, for Premier League tra- training grounds up and down the country due to all the protocols they, they have to follow I think it may become an issue if as we've seen a, a couple of times where Obviously, the Man City game got called off. Uh, I think Aston Villa's game, uh, another team's game got called off prior to that that Man City-Everton game. If that keeps on happening, then I guess there is another debate that has to be had that, you know, if all of a sudden one weekend sees like seven teams out of 20 losing half their squad and all those games get postponed, then of course the questions have to be asked whether is it worth just having a a two-week break here. So... At, at, at the very at this very moment, I can't. I don't foresee a situation unless something like I just said, where club after club after club after Premier League club is just hit with COVID outbreaks, where the Premier League stop it, and where and if they do stop it, where do you then put all of these fixtures? Because you've got Euros in the summer now. UEFA aren't going to want to buckle to the Premier League. You know, the European kind of bodies helped facilitate project restart last year are they going to want to do that a second time at the detriment of their sort of flagship you know tournament um i very much doubt it so there are so many questions to that would have to be answered if there was to be a a, a break in in the premier league i just don't think we're at that stage yet but you know, as we've all seen, you know, last week kids were going back to school when it was the most safest and secure place in the world. Now on Monday, kids aren't going back to school because it's not safe anymore after already going back to school for six hours. So, you know, it's one of them situations. Who knows? I mean, I think the the, the last year and a bit has shown that any anything can change at any time. So, but I mean, my information at the moment is that that isn't going to be, isn't going to be the case. Dan, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on and uh, after after something was in the pipeline for for a few months but it's good to get good to finally get you on and to chat all things saints if you want to find dan on twitter you can find him at dan sheldon sport if you want to find the podcast on twitter you can find it at under underscore saints and myself tom murray at t214 murray you find me at callum wilson 21 uh, thank you very much for for listening thanks again dan for coming on we hope you enjoyed yourself we certainly did and uh, this will be up in a couple of days But uh, from myself and Tom, thank you for listening and good night.